Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Many people know the story of Oskar Schindler. He was a German industrialist and a member of the Nazi Party, but he saved more than 1,200 Jewish men and women. His story has been told in the book Schindler's Ark and, of course, in the Steven Spielberg movie Schindler's List. Selina Karpbiniaz's name was on that list, along with the names of her parents, Irvin and Phyllis Karp. The family was forced into the Jewish ghetto in Krakow, Poland, and then later a forced labor camp, even Auschwitz, before Schindler was able to transfer them to his factory in Czechoslovakia. After the war, the family came to Iowa. Now, Selina Karp-Biniaz's story is told in the book Saved by Schindler by William Fredericks. I'll talk with him later in the hour, but first, I spoke with Selina Karp-Biniaz in 2017, and I asked her to tell me what she remembered about her early life in Krakow, Poland, before the war began. Well, uh, the Germans invaded uh, Poland on September 1st, 1939. Uh, I had just finished Prior to that, uh, second grade, I was eight years old, and as soon as the Germans came, they closed all the schools, so there was no chance to go on to third grade. And the interesting thing is that uh, just prior to the invasion, we lived in an apartment building that had like three sections to it with a courtyard in between, and some of the men would gather and talk politics and talk about what's going to happen, you know. Uh, Interestingly enough, on 1st of September, some of the very same men who were discussing politics with my father and other people came down with armbands with swastikas on them. So you can imagine at that very point, people begin to think you can't trust anybody. So so friends and neighbors are the ones that forced your family into the ghetto. That's right. It was our neighbors, people with, you know, whose children I was playing with, you know. We lived in an area of Krakow that was very, very middle class, very mixed. There were maybe a couple other Jewish families in the complex where we lived, but uh, otherwise, no. Mostly Christians. Right. And so, I went, of course, to public school, which in Poland, Catholicism is a national religion. So all, even the schools, in each school, there was a crucifix hanging in a classroom. And we as children um, were taught good manners. It didn't matter what religion you were, but if you saw a priest or a nun on the street, you curtsied. That was just good manners. So the war was really a shock. So what happened, uh, just weren't expecting it. It's certainly not from an eight-year-old's point of view. Oh, sure. So when your family was forced into the ghetto, being a middle-class family, losing your home, did you lose all of your belongings at that time? Well, it was very fortunate that... Uh, fortunate or unfortunate, but anyway, we had some time. There was like several weeks, almost 
couple months before we were forced into the ghetto. And my mother was able to talk to some of the neighbors and able to sell some of the furniture, silver, china. So that actually when we finally ended up in the ghetto uh, in one room, uh, we didn't have that much to, to, to bring with us, you know. What was life like for you as a child in the ghetto? Well, my parents were both accountants, and so they were able, to, you know, to go out of the ghetto and continue their jobs because the one of the uh, places that my father worked for, which was a sewing factory, was taken over by a, a Viennese man uh, given spoils of war, and it became... Uh, Sewing factory continued to be a sewing factory, but made uniforms for for the army, for the German army. And then my father uh, did all the uh, accounting and ran the factory for this man. So they were allowed to leave the ghetto to go to work. I, however, being only eight, I was nine, ten at that point, because we were in the ghetto for about two years, a little more than two years. Um, at first, we children, the few that were there, were taken to a cooperative where we worked uh, making envelopes, putting together and licking envelopes together. That was one type of work for children. Another type of work was uh, a brush factory where we inserted some of the uh, bristles into pre-drilled pieces of wood, you know, and tighten them with a, a wire. So that was another type of work that we performed. But as the ghetto got smaller and smaller because of liquidations, my parents got very upset and worried by le leaving me alone in the ghetto while they were going out. So they bribed some, I don't know who, to make my age two years older. So at 12, I was given a blue card, which allowed me to leave the ghetto with them. So I left the ghetto at, at that point and tra traveled with my parents to this sewing factory, and I started working on a sewing machine. And that saved your life because most of the children in the ghetto were killed, right? Absolutely. When the ghetto was finally liquidated, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. What do you remember about that time? Well, I remember seeing the brutality, and I, if I tell you, you won't believe it. None of your audience would believe it, but some of the German soldiers would pick up babies and smash their heads against the walls. Uh, you know, it was just it was just awful. It was really at that point that Oscar Schindler, who witnessed this from a kind of a overhang, not a mountain, but a higher hill overhang that he could look into the ghetto, saw this carnage going on. And that's at that point he had an epiphany and decided he was going to save some of his workers that were working at his factory, which was an enamel works factory. So once the ghetto was liquidated, tell me about where your family went next. We went to Pasha concentration camp, 
and the sewing factory was moved into the camp and set up in barracks. We continued making uniforms for the uh, German army, and Mr. Modridge was an excellent human being, really. He cared, very cared about his workers, not only that, but he really was ashamed of what was going on. He was so good that under those huge bolts of fabric that were coming into the camp to the sewing factory for the uniforms, he would bring in extra loaves of bread, medications, things like that, that really helped his workers. As a matter of fact, Mr. Modric uh, has been uh, honored by uh, the Israeli Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, for his contribution in saving and helping the Jews during the war. You were pretending to be two years older than you were so that you could work and stay alive. What was your daily life like in that labor camp? Well, uh, daily life started with uh, early morning, a wake-up call. We all had to appear in front of the barracks, stand in rows of five, and be counted. That was the first thing that happened. After the count, which usually took at least an hour in the cold, uh, then we were allowed to have our breakfast, which was just a slice of bread and a cup, you know, watered-down chicory coffee kind of thing. And then we were marched in groups of five again down from our sleeping barracks over to the area where the factory was located behind another barbed wire. And then uh, there we worked all day. We uh, had lunch made by some of the workers, and then again in the afternoon, when we were finished, we went back to our barracks. Again, we were counted to make sure that nobody escaped, and we were given some soup and another slice of bread, and that was the day. And that, you know, then we went into our barracks, and lights were out, and that was that. As a young girl living in these circumstances, did you fear for your life? Did you think about the future? We always feared for our lives because the commandant of that camp was really a, well, I would say he was a sociopath. He enjoyed killing people with a revolver just if you looked at him. So none of us dared to, you know, look him in in the eyes or anything. We always passed him with our heads down. Uh, There was fear all the time, you know. But as long as we were in the barracks under the protection of the people that employed us, that part of it was fairly safe. When we left the employment, I mean, in other words, in the evening, before we went to the factory in the morning, we were then subject to the commandant. And he could do anything he wanted with us. So there was incredible fear all the time. Were you with your mother in the barracks? Yes. Uh, The women were separated from the men, but I was always with my mother and the other women that worked uh, at, you know, 
at the factory. Were there any other girls as young as you were? There were some, but they were, you know, like 15, uh, 16. Uh, I was always the youngest somehow. Fortunately, I was as tall then as I am now, uh, so uh, you couldn't pick me out from a group of you know, in the row of five, you know. I was not the shortest or anything like that, so I blended in. So they couldn't really tell that I was as young as I was. We're listening to my 2017 interview with Holocaust survivor Selena Karp-Biniaz. Her story is told in the new book, Saved by Schindler's, The Life of Selena Karp-Biniaz. I'll talk with author William Fredericks later in the hour. More in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Selena Karp-Biniaz survived the Holocaust because she and her parents were put on the list created by German industrialist Oskar Schindler and put to work in his munitions factory. After the war, the Karps found a home in Iowa. Now her life story is told in the book Saved by Schindler, The Life of Selena Karp-Biniaz. I'll talk with author William Fredericks in a few minutes, but right now we're listening back to my 2017 interview with Karp-Biniaz. Before the break, we were talking about her life in a forced labor camp in Poland, where she worked in relative safety in a factory run by Julius Maydrich. But as the tide of the war turned, the Germans decided to close that camp. We were told that the camp was going to be liquidated. It was at that point that Oskar Schindler, who had his factory uh, there, uh, decided to take some of his workers to another, start another munitions factory in Czechoslovakia and take some of his workers there. He was a very good friend of, of Madrich, and so he asked Madrich if, if Madrich wouldn't want to join him and move his factory also to Czechoslovakia. But Madrich decided he's had enough of all of this, and he said no, he was going to go back to Vienna. So Oskar Schindler said to him, well, I'm making up a little, because he bribed the commandant and got permission to take 1,100 people to the munitions factory in Czechoslovakia. Uh, he, he said to Madrich, all right, give me some of your people and I'll put them on the list, which is what Madrich did. And that's how my family, because my parents worked so closely with him, you know, in, in running the factory and keeping the accounts, etc., we were put on the list. And that's how we ended up in Schindler's factory uh, in Czechoslovakia. You were placed on that list. You were eventually sent to Czechoslovakia to work in that factory. But before that happened, you were sent to A Auschwitz. Lot of tragedy, yes, exactly. Well, see, what happened, uh, so around uh, beginning, end of September, beginning of October, 
the 800 men who were on the list were put into the uh, boxcars and left for the uh, factory in Czechoslovakia. After they left, and my father was one of them, we had no idea what happened to them because, the, of course, there was no mail or anything like that. We really didn't know whether they made it, whether they ended up in a concentration camp, or whether they were actually going to uh, the munitions factory. Two weeks later, uh, the 300 women were placed in boxcars, and, uh, you know, the boxcars were sealed, and we were in the boxcars for about a day and a half, and it was in the middle of the night when all of a sudden we uh, heard the uh, crunching of the train and stopping, and we were pretty sure that because it was, you know, a uh, day and a half, we figured we were already in Czechoslovakia. But when the doors opened, we found ourselves in Auschwitz, which was an unbelievable shock. Somehow something happened, and the 300 women ended up in Auschwitz. Did you know uh, what Auschwitz was? Well, by the end of 1944, we had heard, you know, we knew that it was an extermination camp. Uh, we knew that, uh, you know, that it was not a good idea to end up in Auschwitz. That was for sure. And we could see it right away. I mean, there were plumes of fire illuminating the sky, the night sky. There were dogs barking, uh, shouting by the German soldiers, uh, trying to get us all out of the uh, boxcars and uh, turned into a line, you know. So we kind of knew, and right away we were... Uh, walked into a barrack that had a sign that said sauna, and sauna in German means bathhouse. And we were walked into that barrack, told to strip completely till we were naked, leave our clothing and everything else behind. Uh, then uh, the women who were barbering there cut our hair, some of it completely to some people, some of it uh, just bits and pieces here and there, so we all looked like scarecrows. And then we were marched into uh, a shower, you know, and the door was closed, and we could all look up and see that uh, there were outlets, you know. We were only hoping, you know, we were wondering, are we going to get the gas or are we going to get showers? Fortunately, so that was a moment of incredible fear, you know. You just stood and there I, waiting to die. That's right. And you can't imagine the relief, uh, even though we were in Auschwitz, the relief when the water finally came down. And we were, you know, wetted down, and then we were led through another door to another barrack where we were given wooden shoes and different clothing, so none of us got the same clothing we came in with, and then we were uh, separated into groups of 100, because there were 300 of us, into three barracks, and we stayed in these three barracks for about between five and six weeks, and uh, we have all kinds of chores to do. during. First of all, we were always 
counted again. But this time we stood on the counting place for about two hours in the morning, two hours at lunchtime, and two hours in the evening. And at this point, it is already November, and it's cold, very cold and snowy in Poland. At the, you know, So uh, we cleaned the barracks. We cleaned the latrines. Those were our jobs. Cleaned the snow. Um, and you and- actually came face-to-face with Dr. Joseph Mengele when you were there, right? Yes, I did. Tell mm-hmm. me what happened. Well, uh, every so often they would br- go in and, and take a group of women to take them to the kitchen to help uh, clean potatoes, you know, to peel potatoes, kitchen duty. Uh, that particular day, uh, they wanted 30 women. My mother, we've always been together. My mother volunteered to go with the group to peel potatoes. As she said later, it was the question of uh, maybe she could pick up a few extra pieces and hide them mm-hmm. and bring them so we could eat them. As soon as that group left, we were commandeered outside and taken to another barrack, walked to another barrack, and told to strip and lined up uh, all naked and in front, in front of Dr. Mengele, who had a pencil in his hand, and the pencil to the left meant, you're no good. The pencil to the right meant, okay, you can still live. And uh, I came face to face with him. I was, my body was complete, you know, I was underdeveloped, skinny, but fortunately, my body was clean. It didn't have any marks on it or anything like that. At first, the first time we went through, he pushed me to the left. But then after he went through the whole group, he had a change of heart and asked the people who were in the left group to come again. And this time, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what prompted me uh, to say to him in German three words said, which means let me go. He looked at me, and the pencil went to the right. And believe me, I ran. I picked up my clothes and crying hysterically, really, because at that point my emotions were at the very top. I ran out uh, naked into the snow. You were in Auschwitz, you said, for what, six or seven weeks before Oskar Schindler was able to intervene to take the people on his list to the factory in Czechoslovakia. Tell me about that moment. How how did you find out that you were able to leave Auschwitz? Well, it was really interesting because we really didn't know what was going to happen to us. There was no way of knowing, you know, are we going to live forever? I mean, are we going to be in Auschwitz? Are we going to go? So, uh, Actually, they were walking us in a group, you know, to be tattooed, when all of a sudden they told us to change direction. Oscar Schindler was there. He had brought in lots of money, a whole whole valise full of money, bribed the commandant, were shoved into boxcars, we were never tattooed. We're the only 300 women who have gone through Auschwitz without being tattooed. And uh, if he hadn't come himself, I don't know what would have happened to us. 
But he came, took charge, and we ended up in the boxcars. And about a day and a half later, we ended up in Brinitz, which was the place where his factory was. The doors opened, we came out, and there was barbed wire, and behind the barbed wire were all the men standing. And that was the first time we knew that the men had made it, you know. They, of course, could not recognize us because when we, when they last saw us, we had hair, we had our own clothes, you know, oh, semi-own clothes. But now we were all bedraggled. Uh, after having been in Auschwitz such a long time, uh, very emaciated, uh, scarecrow-looking. But they were so delighted to have us there that it was quite a celebration almost. Uh, from, from the beginning, when we got to Oskar Schindler's factory, and the factory was supposed to be making, was making, uh, V2 parts, you know, the, the rockets that were shelling London. Yeah. But Oskar Schindler decided that at that point that nothing from his factory was going to be of any use to the Wehrmacht. And so he told us to be sure to uh, not do anything right. You know? <laughs> As a matter of fact, the machines were calibrated into such a way that they were little off and the calibrators that were supposed to measure the pieces were set up in such a way also that they showed that the pieces were correct, but they were not. Nothing ever left that factory uh, to the uh, V2 stations. So that was his sort of a revenge, too. How long were you at the factory before the end of the war? Uh, we were liberated on May 9th. 1945. So we were there from about end of uh, no, from about November, end of November, through uh, that part of time. Uh, it, we felt very safe with him. He was very protective. He and his wife, his wife in particular, was a wonderful human being. Uh, she foraged all around the farms for rutabagas and different winter vegetables that could be put into the water to make some sort of a soup. The problem was we were really, really hungry, and the rations were becoming uh, smaller and smaller because it was very difficult to get food at that point. But she was great. At one point, I ended up in the infirmary, and it was Mr. Schindler really who saved my life because every morning at 10 o'clock, she would come into the infirmary with a pot of farina. You know what farina is? It's, it's a pasta, like right? Of wheat. Yeah, cream of wheat or something like that that she had uh, uh, cooked herself. And then she would ladle it into our little bowls and that extra little bit of nourishment was very, very important. You know, you know, I was a growing girl. I was 13, so that there, was very important. Yeah. How you long know, did I, it take you to get to Iowa after liberation? I know that, that, of course, a lot of people had to wait far longer than they should have had to, to go to a safe place and a safe home. Uh, well, 
after the liberation, you know, we ended up back in Poland, walking through Czechoslovakia, uh, and we contacted the Red Cross to, to let people on the outside know that we had survived. We contacted a Jewish survivors organization to see if anybody from our families survived. And of course, I had only had two second grade education. I could read, but I certainly couldn't go into the gymnasium or, you know, the middle school or high school at that point because I had I couldn't write. I had not had a pencil in my hand in all those years. So uh, we had to hire a tutor. And you'll probably want to know how did we have money, which was another thing that Oscar Schindler provided us with. Not with money, but each family was given two bowls of cloth because the factory that he took over was a cloth factory. We were given two bolts of cloth and five pairs of scissors, which he felt we could barter in Poland, you know, for a living, for food, for possibly a room, things like that. And boy, that really did help. Uh, we bartered all four pairs of scissors. I still have one pair, and I'm bringing it with me to Iowa. Wow. Selena, there are so many things that I want to talk to you about, but we're going to run out of time. So I want to I ask you, I want to ask you, as someone who has spent so many years sharing her story, right now, at this moment in time, what does it mean to you to be able to share your story? Why is it so important to you? Well, what's important to me is that I was uh, the two years that I lived in Germany, I was really helped by uh, my tutor, who was a 90-year-old retired nun who had never left the cloister. She, in her way, gentle way and total acceptance of me uh, in teaching me German and English, showed me a way to work through my anger and bitterness, taught me that you that hatred is corrosive, and that the only way you can move forward is to work through your anger and hatred. And because of that, because of my encounter with her, I not only figured out that not all Germans were ogres, that circumstances make people do certain things, and that is why I speak to young people. I have an incredible faith in the young people people, they are so much more acceptant of diversity. They are forward-looking. Uh, you know, you have to be taught to hate. So that's what I'm working on, trying to tell people, do not teach hatred. My 2017 interview with Selena Carbinius. Her story is now told in the book Saved by Schindler. I'll talk with author William Fredericks in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. So far this hour, we've been listening back to my 2017 interview with Selena Karpbinias. She is a Jewish Holocaust survivor, originally from Poland, who came to Iowa with her mother and father after the war. She graduated from North High School in Des Moines and went on to Grinnell College. She is still alive and well, living in California and actively telling her story. Her story is also told in the new book, Saved by Schindler, The Life of Selena Karpbinias, by William Fredericks and published by Ice Cube Press. William Fredericks is professor emeritus of history and former director of the Iowa History Center at Simpson College in Indianola. And he is on the line with me now. Hello, Bill. Hello, Charity. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you first encountered Selena Karpbinias about the time that I first interviewed her. Tell me about your first connection with her. Uh, sure. I, um, I heard Selena speak in September 2017 at Valley High School. Um, I was incredibly impressed with her story, and uh, I, I left thinking about it a lot, but I did not think I would uh, end up writing her biography. How did that come about? Um, two years later, Sandy Yoder, the director of the Iowa Jewish Historical Society, asked if I'd be interested in writing it. And I said, yes, absolutely. But um, I was writing two other books, a book on Roxanne Conlon and one on Bill Knapp. And I uh, asked her if I could start it in a year or two. And Sandy said, no. (laughs) Um, She wanted it started right away because she was worried about Selena's age. So uh, we talked some more and she said, I only think it will take about a year. And I said, oh no, I'm sure it will take uh, at least two or three years. We talked some more and uh, they agreed to pay for a year's leave of absence from Simpson, so I agreed to uh, to write the book. Wow. And so this book was really sponsored by the Iowa Jewish Historical Society in many ways. And you dove in and did an incredible amount of research for this book that is evident on every page. Tell me what kind of research you did. Um, well, I tell you, I started uh, with some background reading, probably in October or November of 2019. Um, I checked out, oh, 20 or 25 books on the Holocaust, on World War II, on Oscar Schindler. Started doing some reading while I was finishing the other two uh, books I was writing. Um, So while I was doing background reading and finishing those books, I uh, made out a list of people I needed to interview. And I came up with a list of about 50 or so people. So I started interviewing people, um, called Selena, um, had did a phone interview and then planned to uh, fly out to see her in late March of 2020. But you know what happened in late March of 2020. COVID happened and that really uh, changed the project for me. So uh, there were some upsides, I should say. I got to keep all those library books I had for uh, months uh, because libraries were closed. And COVID um, cut down on distractions. So I was able to focus on this book almost exclusively. But the negatives were, and these were big, I had to do all my interviews by phone or Zoom um, with Selena and with the rest of the people I interviewed. And because, uh, because archives were closed, I didn't have access to primary documents for quite some time. The work of Oscar Schindler and his creation of this list that saved 1,200 Jewish lives has been well-documented, and of course, many of us have seen Schindler's List by Steven Spielberg or read the book that that predated Schindler's List, the movie. But Selena's life 
was not well documented. And she has been sharing her story so openly for years. However, she was nine years old when the war began. She was a child who endured incredible trauma. And her memories are are very clear. But you had to go from the story that she's been sharing and and you went back and, and tried to verify the information that she's been sharing over the years. How did you even accomplish that, given how long ago it was and, and that so many people that she'd been in contact with had died? Um, that's a good question. I uh, Obviously, a lot of uh, secondary source material helped on this. I was able to learn a lot about Kindler uh, and the, the camps that Selena was in through uh, others' research. Um, I also was able to go back and listen to... Um, interviews of Selena's parents. Um, They gave some interviews in the early 1980s, which were taped. And those were incredibly helpful because they were looking at uh, the experience of the Holocaust from the perspective of uh, being young adults at the time. So their understanding helped shed light on what Selena had gone through and um, fill in some of the blanks that um, Selena's memory had. You discovered a few things about Selena's life that she didn't know, because, again, she had the memory of of being a child through all of this experience. What did you find that that she learned about her own life? One of the things I learned, which which really surprised Selena, um, and I imagine your listeners heard this, when Selena describes... um, when Selena and her mother were being taken to uh, Brunlitz, Czechoslovakia, to Schindler's factory in, uh, in late 1944, she talks about them arriving at Auschwitz, and she says that uh, she and the rest of the women were shocked and surprised, which makes sense because the Germans had no reason to tell them, but it was a planned stop. The stop at Auschwitz was to quarantine the women and try and keep disease from spreading from their original camp to the destination camp. Um, so, of course, the women were terrified uh, and uh, they had no idea, but it was a planned stop. That was one of the things that uh, actually shocked Selena when I uh, was able to uh, able to tell her that. You also were able to track down information about Selena's uncle because uh, she, in her story, often shares information about her aunt that went with them from Krakow into the Jewish ghetto and was an incredibly important part of her life. But she didn't know anything about her uncle, her aunt's husband, or at least not very much. What were you able to find about him? Right. Uh, Selena tells the story. Uh, Her aunt, Gucha Wittenberg, uh, went to the ghetto with the family and lived in the same apartment. And then Gucha also went on to Plashoff with them before Gucha is sent to a concentration camp. Um, Selena also said that she remembered her aunt getting married. Uh, She thought the wedding was in the ghetto. And she remembered that the husband was a dental technician or a dentist, but she could not remember his name. And she did recall that he um, he did some rudimentary uh, dental work for other inmates in the uh, in the ghetto. She said, though, that she he did not believe that Gucha or the husband worked in the factory where her parents worked. And she didn't uh, have any notion that he was on Schindler's list. What I discovered was um, I was listening to a tape, I think it was from Selena's mother, and she made an offhanded comment um, about liberation. She said, when we were liberated, um, Freddie, Freddie Oberfeld was with us, and I didn't know who Freddie Oberfeld was, but 
it, it just stuck with me. So I, I was doing some digging a month or so later, and I found an Oberfeld on Schindler's list. And then I continued to do some digging, and I found that same name, Oberfeld, on the Madrich list of the Madrich workers who went to, uh, who were sent to Schindler's list. And it turned out, um, when I contacted the Holocaust Museum, they sent me some primary documents on Adolf Oberfeld. And the documents came back to say Adolf Oberfeld was a dental technician and his wife was Gucha Wittenberg. So that was a big discovery, uh, that finding his name, his identity, but then also that he was on Schindler's list, which meant he worked in the uh, factory with Selena's parents, and she had just forgotten that. When I talked with Selena in 2017, we didn't spend time talking about what life was like for her and her family after they came to Iowa. She ended up doing a, a lot of schooling in a hurry to make up for lost time um, with her education through all of those years during the war. She also went on to Grinnell College. But something that you share in the book is that she and her parents quickly learned after they came to Iowa that people didn't want to hear about their experiences during the war. Tell me more about that. Uh, right. Shortly after they are in uh, Des Moines, um, Irvin's brother David, uh, who brought the family over to the United States and, uh, and Des Moines, invited some other Jewish friends over um, to meet Selena and her parents. But I guess Selena who left the room shortly thereafter because the parents were talking with these friends and the friends asked them about Europe and somehow the conversation turned to World War II. And Selena's parents said a few things about their, uh, some general things about their Holocaust experience. And they uh, were met with gasps and nervous giggles. Um, it was clear that the, the people could not understand at all what had happened to them um, and didn't seem to want to hear it. So after that experience, the parents decided they weren't going to talk about their Holocaust experience. And Selena had a couple of similar experiences. She did tell some friends. Uh, she told some newspaper reporters about her experiences broadly. Um, and she told people about her experience with uh, Mengele. And that is actually um, dramatized in a radio broadcast uh, later that year. But when Selena saw the reactions that were similar to the reactions her parents got, she decided people couldn't understand, and she stopped talking about it. And when you say she stopped talking about it, she really stopped talking about it. She didn't even tell her children about what had happened to her during the war. Right. That's exactly right. The children didn't know. Um, even her husband knew uh, just the very broad outlines of, uh, of her experience. There are obviously many pieces of that. She went through such incredibly traumatic experiences that, that I can imagine that recounting those even now is really difficult for her. But tell me a little bit about why she decided that she would start sharing her story. Sure. Um, I think her change of heart started years before she actually started talking about it. And the first encounter she had with her past was really when she saw a book review of Thomas Keneally's book, Schindler's List. She was shocked when she saw this review in the New York Times in the fall of 82, that anyone would be uh, interested in this story. She couldn't imagine anyone would want to read this. Um, but she went out and got the book, and she was uh, startled about, as she said, her life in print. Um, so that made her at least start to think about her past. Now, 
by that time, interestingly enough, her parents were already talking about it publicly um, when they were interviewed from time to time, but Selena was not. And the other interesting thing to me is Selena and her parents did not talk about the, their shared Holocaust experiences. That was something they, they did not share with one another. It really wasn't until Schindler's List, the film, came out 11 years later that Selena really decided the time was right to share her story. She felt that people could comprehend it because it was being witnessed by millions um, in the film. She has expressed many times her gratitude to Steven Spielberg for telling that story and the way that he told that story. And uh, she says frequently something to the effect that Oscar Schindler saved her life, but Steven Spielberg helped her find her voice. Tell me more about that feeling. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think the best way to, to put it is the way a couple of her friends, lifelong friends put it. They could not understand how Selena could have kept this bottled up for 50 years. Um, and and they, they couldn't imagine how difficult that was. And I think that when Selena realized people could finally grasp what she could tell them about the Holocaust, she could release this. It must have been an amazing um, release that she could let out these, these feelings and these emotions. So yeah, she really, she put Steven Spielberg on par with, uh, with Oscar Schindler. That's exactly right. She has written incredibly powerful poetry about what she experienced during the Holocaust. And you also write about not just how she has shared this story with the public, which we are all so grateful for. And it's so important that, that she can witness to all of us what she experienced. But I, I love the part of the book where you wrote about how she then embraced sharing her story with her children and her grandchildren, even taking them to Poland, even taking them to Auschwitz. Tell me about that. Right. Um, well, actually, her, her children found out initially in different ways. Her son initially found out um, when he was a young teen, I think, and he did something that upset his, his father quite a bit, had visibly upset his mother. And his father pulled him aside and he said, you shouldn't do that. Don't you know what your mother went through in the concentration camps or something to that effect? And, and uh, that was the first uh, Rob, the son, ever heard of it. Selena's daughter, Sue, heard some things about the uh, family's Holocaust experience from Selena's mother, who initially had mentioned it. Um, but again, it wasn't until the book came out that uh, Rob read the book. And he re remembered something about the concentration camps that his father had said. And then he remembered these scissors that his mother had, these sewing scissors, but they weren't, they didn't look like regular sewing scissors. They were blunt nosed and they were um, iron. And that made him sort of flash on, on a memory of, um, of the book where the book described that Schindler passed out items that the people could trade. And some of these items were scissors. And uh, he called his mother and he said, mom, those scissors, are those from uh, from the camps? And she said, yes. So then she gradually started talking a little bit with uh, Rob and then Sue about her experience. And uh, several years later, she took uh, both of her son's family and her daughter's family to uh, to Krakow to, uh, to see where she had grown up. She did not go to Auschwitz, though, at the time. Um, the families did. Uh, Rob and Sue and their families did, but uh, Selena did not. 
she is still alive and well and still sharing her story, but she has created this incredible legacy. And, and Bill, now your book is a part of that legacy. What have you gathered from her that, that it means to her to have this book published? Um, you know, I should say um, my experience talking to her over uh, the phone and through Zoom many, many times, before I even met her in person, I was able to tell what a, a warm and amazing person uh, she is. But, but the other thing I noticed that when we would talk, she would pause and she would stop. And, and you could tell she got choked up a few times. The book really was cathartic for her, I think. Um, but it, it brought back some awful memories that she clearly had uh, suppressed for, for years and years. I hope the book. Um, was generous of, of you to say, uh, Charity, but I, I hope the book not only describes the horrific events that Selena went through, but um, how resilient she is and how she was able to put these awful experiences behind her uh, and build a very uh, successful life. Bill Fredericks, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you very much, Charity. William Fredericks is the author of the new book, Saved by Schindler, The Life of Selena Karp Vinyas. It's published by Ice Cube Press. And Bill will be at an event at Barnes & Noble at Jordan Creek in West Des Moines on Saturday, December 10th at 1 p.m., along with some other nonfiction writers from Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.